Hello, world. I'm Roger Corville, and this is For the Hope's Daily Audio Bible, where we read through the scriptures conversationally, talk about the truth claims of Christianity, and learn to fall more in love with Jesus and the people in his world. You ready? Let's roll. Welcome. Think about the Holy Spirit's ministry. In the Old Testament, when we look at it through the lens of perhaps even just First and Second Samuel, like we've been reading through, included in the Holy Spirit's ministry is an occasional, like, coming upon a chosen person for a particular task or statement like we heard of Samuel. Further, we see his work as an expectation of the Spirit's help that that could be given or withdrawn, which seems a little weird to us sometimes. And ultimately, the Holy Spirit inspired certain people, like Samuel, to speak or write God's message. But what about in the New Testament? Hey, Hopeful, welcome to For the Hope's Daily Audio Bible, which is the part of our journey together where we commit together to reading through every word of God's revelation of himself Monday through Saturday and consider our own life and story work stories in light of that. My friends, in the New Testament, in a new covenant sense, Jesus promised what? The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, right? Not surprise visits. And certainly at times, believers might experience a particular empowering of the Holy Spirit for a task. But the picture of the Holy Spirit's ministry changes from the Old Testament idea of an external visitation by God to the New Testament picture of a resident presence by God in the life of the believer. And that's part of the message in Romans chapter 5 through 8 and particularly 6 through 8. And today in our New Testament segment, Romans chapter 6, the death of Christ to the penalty of sin also meant the death of all who believe in him to the practice of sin. Now, if you want a key part of what God teaches about practical, spirit-led holiness, today's reading is for you. So Paul just got done talking about the blessings and basis of being made right with God called justification. And now, Romans chapter 6. What should we say then? Should we continue to sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we also will live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So, 
you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires, and do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who were alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you, because you are not under the law, but under the grace. What then? Should we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Absolutely not. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one that you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. And having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. I am using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you offered the parts of yourselves as slaves to impurity and greater and greater lawlessness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. What, so what fruit was produced then from these things you are now ashamed of? It, that's kind of a rhetorical question, right? <laughs> He's going, nothing. So what fruit was produced then from the things you are now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. But now, since you have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification, and the outcome is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hey, I think... Uh, I think Jesus may have said that. <laughs> well, my friends, that is Romans chapter 6. So, remember, the word to sanctif sanctify means to set apart, right? It says nothing about the nature of a thing, only its position with reference to God, right? The tabernacle, and remember, the tabernacle and its furnishings were sanctified, set apart for God's exclusive use, Right, But the wood, the metal, cloth, other materials were not of themselves holy, but they were set apart to God. Right In John 17, Jesus says that he himself is sanctified. Now, what is our responsibility? My friends, Christian living is not a passive thing in which we merely, you know, quote-unquote, die and let God do everything for us. The three key words in the chapter here are know, reckon, and yield. And I'm bringing you this from, from Warren Wearsby, right? But he says, we must know our spiritual position and privileges in Christ. And this means spending time with the word of God. We must reckon that what God says about us in the Bible is true in our lives. And this means that showing faith that is born of the spirit and then leads to yielding everything to the spirit, not just occasionally, but all day long. So, turning back to our Old Testament segment, the new king, anticipated by Samuel, has appeared, right? Saul was the people's king. David is God's king, right? The Lord 
chooses David, who has a heart for God, and through the Lord's enablement, does things like we heard yesterday, defeating uh, the Philistine champion, Goliath. Well, now David's popularity grows, and, well, 1 Samuel chapter 18. When David had finished speaking with Saul, Jonathan was bound to Saul, David, in close friendship and loved him as much as he loved himself. Saul kept David with him from that day on and did not let him return to his father's house. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as much as himself. Then Jonathan removed the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his military tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. David marched out with the army and was successful in everything Saul sent him to do. Saul put him in command of the fighting men, which pleased all the people and Saul's servants as well. As the troops were coming back when David was returning from killing the Philistine, the women came out from the cities of Israel to meet King Saul, singing and dancing with tambourines, with shouts of joy and with three stringed instruments, and as they danced, the women sang, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Saul was furious and resented this song. They credited tens of thousands to David, he complained, but they only credited me with thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul watched David jealously from that day forward. The next day, an evil spirit sent from God came powerfully on Saul, and he began to rave inside the palace. David was playing with the lyre as usual, but Saul was holding a spear, and he threw it, thinking, I'll pin David to the wall. But David got away from him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had left Saul. I'm just going to pause and say that, my friends. When we go love on people with the love of Jesus, um, we think, well, wait a minute, what, isn't love attractive? Isn't truth attractive? But notice why Saul was afraid of David. And remember that sometimes people will respond to us that way too. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had left Saul. Therefore Saul sent David away from him and made him commander over a thousand men. David led the troops and continued to be successful in all his activities because the Lord was with him. When Saul observed that David was very successful, he dreaded him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he was leading their troops. Saul told David, Here is my oldest daughter Merab. I'll give her to you as a wife if you will be a warrior for me and fight the Lord's battles. But Saul was thinking... I don't need to raise a hand against him. Let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Then David responded, Who am I? And what is my family or my father's clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? When it was time to give Saul's daughter Merab to David, she was given to Adriel, the Mahalathite, as a wife. Now Saul's daughter Michal loved David. And when it was reported to Saul, it pleased him. I'll give her to him, Saul thought. She'll be a trap for him, and the hand of the Philistines will be against him. So Saul said to David a second time, You can now be my son-in-law. Saul then ordered his servants 
Speak to David in private and tell him, Look, the king is pleased with you, and all his servants love you. Therefore, you should become the king's son-in-law. Saul's servants reported these words directly to David, but he replied, Is it trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law? I am a poor commoner. The servants reported back to Saul. These are the words that David spoke. Then Saul replied, Say this to David. The king desires no other bride price except a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Actually, Saul intended to cause David's death at the hand of the Philistines. When the servants reported these terms to David, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. Before the wedding day arrived, David and his men went out and killed 200 Philistines. He brought their foreskins and presented them as full payment to the king to become his son-in-law. Then Saul gave his daughter Michal to David as his wife. And Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michal loved him. And he became even more afraid of David. As a result, Saul was David's enemy from then on. Every time the Philistine commanders came out to fight, David was more successful than all of Saul's officers. And so his name, meaning David's name, became well known. And that is 1 Samuel 18. All right, my friends, we're going to close up with a psalm that relates to, to that whole... Saul turning against David thing. But before we get there, we're going to keep rolling in our Old Testament segment with uh, this kind of like special little time. One of the things that we sometimes do is when there is a long, long, long list of names like 1 Chronicles chapters 1 through 9, we verbally skim them. So uh, sit tight with me. Pretend you're kind of just glancing over this long list of names, but every once in a while something catches your eye. So I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I will call out things that are uh, that break the pattern. First Chronicles two. These were Israel's sons: Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Dan, Joseph, Benjamin, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. Judah's descendants. Judah's sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah, these three men were born to him by Bathsheba, the Canaanite woman. Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death. Judah's daughter-in-law, Tamar, bore Perez and Zerah to him. Judah had five sons in all. Now, I'm just, I just called that out because, one, that's different than just like long lists of names. And you may have noticed, and this is important, that Judah's daughter-in-law, Tamar, is noted in a genealogy that typically otherwise only had male men because that's how they they adjudicated the Lord's blessing to to Israel, uh, meaning land ownership and protecting and providing for the people of Israel. So I say that because also because Tamar, you'll recall, is in the lineage of Jesus and therein is an important time that it's called out. More names, more names. And then here's Carmi's son, Acre, who brought trouble on Israel when he was unfaithful by taking the things set apart for destruction. Then it's Ethan's son, Hezron's sons, Ram, Neshan, Boaz, Jesse, Caleb, who fathered Hezron and his children, 
and after this, Hezron slept with his the daughter of Maker, the father of Gilead, and Hezron had married her when he was 60 years old, and she bore Segub to him. Segub fathered Jair, who possessed 23 towns in the land of Gilead, but Geshur and Aram captured Jair's villages along with Kenath and its surrounding villages, 60 towns. Lots more names. Um, we get down to Shishan, right? Shishan had no sons, only daughters, but he did have an Egyptian servant whose name was Jarha. Shishan gave his daughter in marriage to his servant Jarha, and she bore Atai to him. So Obed and Azariah and Elishat and Shalom and Caleb and Hebron and Shema and lots more names. We're just going to visually skim. Now we get to chapter 3. These were David's sons born to him in Hebron. So this is starting to get sneak a little ahead of where we're at in the Samuel text, but you'll see that we're, roughly speaking, going to be reading conjoint passages for the next probably couple months because when a passage is in both Samuel or Kings and Chronicles, for instance, we'll, we'll pull all those together into a single reading instead of just reading through the Old Testament in a linear manner. These were the... Where David's sons who were born to in Hebron, Amnon, Daniel, Absalom, Shephatiah. Six sons were born to David in Hebron, where he reigned seven years and six months, and he reigned in Jerusalem 33 years. And then we a whole long list of Judah's kings, then list of David's line after the exile, names, 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 and that gets us up through First Chronicles 3. If this were a seminary class, we'd go in and go, okay, every one of these has some significance that we could draw out, but that's not the nature of this podcast, so I hope that kind of verbally skimming them works for you when it uh, would otherwise literally take us 45 minutes to read through I don't even know how many names. So we're going to wrap up today our wisdom segment with Psalm 59. And the superscription here says, For the choir director, this means this is actually in the Hebrew text, For the choir director, to the tune of Do Not Destroy, a victim of David, when Saul sent agents to watch the house and kill him. Rescue me from my enemies, my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Rescue me from evildoers and save me from men of bloodshed. Because look, Lord, they set an ambush for me. Powerful men attack me, but not because of any sin or rebellion of mine. For no fault of mine, they run and take up a position. Awake to help me and take notice. Lord God of armies, You are the God of Israel. Rise up and punish all the nations. Do not show favor to any wicked traitors. Selah. They return at evening, snarling like dogs and prowling around the city. Look, they spew from their mouths sharp words from their lips. They say, for who will hear? But you laugh at them, Lord. You ridicule all the nations. I will keep watch for you, my strength, because God is my stronghold. My faithful God will come to meet me. God will let me look down on my adversaries. 
Do not kill them, otherwise my people will forget. By your power, make them homeless wanderers and bring them down, Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths and the words of their lips, let them be caught in their pride. They utter curses and lies. Consume them in fury and consume them until they are gone. Then people will know throughout the earth that God rules over Jacob. Selah. And then they return at evening, snarling like dogs and prowling around the city. They scavenge for food. They growl if they are not satisfied. But I, but I will sing of your strength and will joyfully proclaim your faithful love in the morning. For you have been a stronghold for me, a refuge in my day of trouble. To you, my strength, I sing praises, because God is my stronghold, my faithful God. And Lord, I pray that for someone listening right now, someone feeling culture closing in, someone feeling disconnected, or disheartened. Lord, may we be reminded by the power of your spirit that you are for us and not against us, that you are our stronghold. I love you, my friends. Amen. Amen.